the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Welcome to another edition of the Spot Track Podcast. My name is Mike Gennetti. It is Monday, September 18th. Just finished our most of week two of the NFL. Two Monday Night Football games tonight to finish it off. Some interesting teams to look at, including the Saints and the Browns. Both, I think, are going to overachieve this year, but we shall see. It's early. Um, couple of new contracts have posted recently. We had some extensions hit, including those Saints with Cesar Ruiz, a player that was falling out of favor, switched positions, impressed the hell out of that organization, and got himself $44 million over the next four years. That contract is now live, as well as some of the big boys, including Joe Burrow and Nick Bosa. Two deals we broke down, not only on the website, but in full article form and full podcast form as well on SpotTrack.com. Plenty more NFL stuff coming up including uh, some overreactions, probably Thursday with Brandon Kravitz, but we're going to split it up today. A little bit of NBA off the top. Keith Smith has a couple of great articles that I love to talk about this time of year, so he's going to join me in just a moment. And on the back end, Dan Soman, I know Tani cleaning out his locker, what it means going forward, and how we got here, all the way back to when he posted early and what the financials meant then and what the financials looked like in pre-arb and then eventually in arbitration and eventually capping off with this $30 million 2022 season, 23 season, excuse me, leading us to where we are now, which is an early exit from, <laughs> from the Angels and an early start to a really unique and crazy and curious free agency. It's about 30 minutes of Otaniness with Cousin Dan at the back end of this thing. Thrilled to have, be joined again by Keith Smith, who has done so much work for spotrate.com this summer. It's uh it's been an elongated off season for Keith and it's not done. I think Damian Lillard and a few more players still possibly on the move. Maybe not to the start of the season, but we've got rookie extension deadlines and all sorts of things to get to. Um, but I love that Keith kind of stepped back and went uh, objective here for us for a second. The best and worst deals of the off season, at least as we know it so far. Keith, welcome to the show. Do you like this kind of work or is this um, painful for you because you kind of have to put your neck out there a little bit? No, I, I don't mind uh, that part of it at all. It's And I try to caveat it with especially right, the best. No one's ever going to really criticize you for that. right? <laughs> yeah. Everybody's going to be like, hey, you like the, the contract we signed. This is great. <laughs> um, it's the worst ones. And I tried to caveat it a little bit with some truth, not just this cover for myself, but it's getting harder and harder to do those worst uh, contracts. And that'll swing back around in a year or two when everything kind of re-normalizes here with the salary cap. But but yeah, it, it's I don't mind doing these at all. I kind of like doing them actually because I, I think it, it, what I try to do is get people to think about it slightly differently, right? Like, rather than just look at the numbers, let's look at the fit and how all this stuff plays together and matters. Yeah, that's the thing, right? The numbers get so big for everybody that it's, you just kind of gloss over when you see a player sign a contract. So you have to dive into how they, how the impact is going to be. And for the most part, it has to be immediate impact. I assume that's what you were dealing with here, right? I mean, it's not about three, four years anymore with any of these players, unfortunately. It's what have you done for me over the next six months? And then if not, get the hell out of here, right? It's a, it's a pretty fast-paced moving league, and that's why it's uh, 12 months for you and no longer just a, a couple, <laughs> you know, a half a year and then a nice summer break, right? 
Yeah, I mean, it used to be, you know, about as soon as Summer League ended, it was like, all right, well, I'll see you all at the end of September. (laughs) And now, you know, now it just keeps keeps going. But, yeah, it's funny with the NBA contracts, the way they kind of work now is we're we're seeing two different things happen. And one is teams are more willing to bet on potential than they've ever been, which is not – it's not the guy who – like I always think this is going back a ways, but when the Indiana Pacers went all in on kind of getting – Jermaine O'Neal because it was like hey this guy just is sitting at the end of the Trailblazers bench and we're going to bet this guy can be really really good and that obviously worked out great for them now it, what we're seeing is it's more of the hey I'm fine to invest a ton of money in Jason Tatum, Luka Doncic, yeah. Jalen Brown because those teams are like these guys are already pretty good I think they'll hold. The other thing we're seeing is I almost uh, make it kind of like Major League Baseball um, to step into your world a little bit more here. It's the the these super long term contracts where you really you know at the end, hey, we're paying for past performance, right? It's yeah. you know like, like the the you know the Giancarlo Stanton, Mike Trout deals where it's you know hey, this thing will end ten years from now. It's going to be a terrible contract, but you know it's a little <laughs> different now in the NBA. You have the salary cap part of it that that makes it a little more tricky. But I think with some of these, you know, veteran deals, these teams are looking at and saying, all right, we can live with it because we paid all this money because we wanted the guy right now. And we'll deal with the fallout down the line later or whatever it may be. Yeah. And and it's it's still I think maybe maybe correct me. It's still the, the league that everybody's tradable. Right. So yeah, you can, you can have a guy for three years in a five-year contract and you're going to find somebody to take on those last year or two years if you have to. And uh, until that changes, uh, yeah, you're right. There's really low risk in doing these kind of deals because it's just kind of a, a revolving door I, that maybe, maybe sort of changing. I don't know. Am I incorrect in thinking this Dame Lillard stuff is a little bit of a, of a, of a foot in the ground moment here for the league. Is this going to be something that, the other teams build on you think you know we're not going to give you exactly what you demand even though you're a superstar um i think a little bit i think you have two sides to this one i think you have the uh side where the teams are saying uh small aging guard who's had injury issues is owed a ton of money I'm not sure I want to give every possible last thing I can to get him. Mm. And then you have the trailblazers saying, Hey, we don't really care that you want to be in Miami. We have one chance to trade you and to set ourselves up for the, you know, for the future and for the long term. Yeah. We like the kids we have, but you know what we really want, um, you know, the, you know, the assets that come in in a trade like this. So it doesn't really matter where you want to go, where for years and years, the, the, kind of going assumption was oh player x wants to go to destination y it'll just get done and happen Mm -hmm. i still think that probably happens but i think you know we're seeing it teams are kind of locking in and saying yeah no it's not going to be just what you want the james harden trade another good example of that as well where the sixers are like hey we have certain goals we want to pull off when we trade you and that's not just to make you happy and i think what some teams are starting to say is why do I care how happy you are when you're not going to be here anymore? And there's only so many places you can go. And I bet even if your agent is mad, if we come with a max offer down the line, it's going to all work out just fine. Okay. Um, let's just tease this stuff a little bit. Let's just tease the articles because <laughs> you did a lot of work here. As you said, you didn't just throw some numbers out there and, and hope that they, you know, they stick in six months. Um, I'm going to start with your worst deals of the NBA offseason. Every player here, I think there's about 10, 
got about 10 here. Um, yeah, I, I, I say 10-ish because I yeah. like to kind of play with it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody's got five, six paragraphs to go with it. So you're you're explaining your, your data. That's for darn sure here. Um, I think you kind of went sort of alphabetically by team. I don't know how you did this. Um, no, it was just kind of as I was. Are you to ranking them? them? So, so am I, is it fair for me to say that the, the guy on top was the first guy you thought of? All right. So <laughs> that is fair, but they are not ranked. Okay. Um, the, the, the order was just kind of as I, I, I kind of started to write. And then as I went, because what I did was I made a big list and then I paired the list way down on both the best and the worst. And then I just kind of, picked and choose as, as I went and said, Oh yeah. All right. I like that one. I like that. I'm going to write about this guy next, but that said, yeah, Dylan Brooks is on the top of the list. When Scott and I were talking, I was like, who should be the cover image for this? And I said, just put Dylan Brooks. Cause everyone expects it anyway. Just, just let's lean into it heavy. And then I said, hopefully I can explain, uh, you know, as I get into a, where, where I landed with him. Okay, he's the only one I want to talk about with you. Sure. All right, because because I, I and you know I'm a I'm a, I'm an above average NBA fan. All right, I watch plenty. I, I dive into as much as I can just to keep up with you guys here from a number standpoint. Keith, I like this deal. <laughs> I like, okay. I I like the fit. I I like him joining this team as the you know antagonist. I don't really care what the money is because Houston hasn't spent a dollar and a half since, you know, basically buying out John Wall. I I, I just think, especially after seeing him play, you know, in this world classic, um, I think he's really going to work out and that money is just going to be a wash, especially from a defensive side of it. But, uh, you know, please, you know, give me your, your, your bullet points here as to why you think this is going to be a fantastic disaster. Cause I, I would love to see that too. <laughs> Yeah, so in in and I do explain in there. It's it didn't in really a better, more accurate title would have been curious most curious deals of the offseason, mm-hmm. but nobody wants to read most curious. Yeah, that, doesn't sell the, books, that doesn't sell the bacon right, right there. Exactly. So so with Dylan Brooks, part of it is one I look at and I say, Well, who were the Rockets really bidding against? Right. Who yeah. no nobody else was kind of jumping in there, especially of the cap space team saying, you know what, we want Dylan Brooks. Because I agree with you on everything you said. Ima Udoka is yeah. trying to change the culture in Houston. He wants guys who will defend, guys who know what they're doing, guys he can really say, Hey, I need you to go talk to young player X because I'm not getting through to him today or whatever it may be. That's why Dylan Brooks, Fred Van Vliet, Jeff Green, some of the vets they brought in. That's why they're there. They're to help, you know, Jalen Green, Jabari Smith, Alperin Shingoon. They're trying to lift those guys up into, you know, into a better place with this. I don't think you're going to see the Rockets play a lot of 30 turnover games anymore where they just throw the ball around the gym, don't play any defense and lose, you know, 150 to, you know, 120. I don't think we're going to see many of those anymore. That said, with Dylan Brooks, who are you bidding against? That was a lot of money to pay him. He should ideally be your fourth or fifth offensive option. Hopefully he'll be able to control himself and Fred Van Vliet and the coaching staff will be able to control that. If they can, it's fine. You know, at 20 ish million a year um, where it landed. Cause that was the other funny thing. Just the way the reporting worked around this it was four years, 80 million. Then it was four years, like 85. And then it was four years, 90 plus. And in the reality is it's four years, about 86 with some incentives in there, but it just kind of kept climbing. That's the the last thing I'll kind of caveat with this one is the Rockets, if they were going to get serious about doing 
doing pushing this rebuild forward. These are the kind of contracts you end up having to give out. And what they're hoping is two, three years from now, if it's time to move on from Dylan Brooks or it didn't work out, they can do that relatively easily. And I think they will be able to because, as I wrote in the piece, it's an overpay, but it's not what people made it out like this was the worst thing ever. But those are also, I think, some of the same people like Dylan Brooks better brush up on his Chinese because that's where he's going to be playing. I, I was just which about was to go there. Ridiculous. Yeah, I was just about to go there that, you know, some people had him out of the league this, yeah. this up, upcoming season. So I guess in that regard, 86 million, you know, is a bit much. Uh, I get it. I, I, you, the bet against yourself or, you know, who are they bet, bidding against for this? comes up a lot in the NBA, especially with trades, you know, like that, mm-hmm. like who, who, who was going after Rudy Gobert so hard that that trade package had to happen for Minnesota, right? It, just exactly. like one, every year we get something like that. And maybe this is it. Um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do the, the greeny get up tease here. I would have had your number two as, as the number one, that to me is a slam dunk. What in the hell? Um, especially because there's, there are moves to be made on that roster. So please go read this piece. And you tell me if you agree with that sentiment, because I do think that team (laughs) with that contract doesn't make sense for what's about to happen to them going forward. Let's flip to the goods, the best deals of the NBA offseason. Again, we're just going to tease this thing. Keith's got about 10, eight or eight or 10 for each of the best and the worst. And uh, you're certain to disagree with one or two of them because that's how sports talk works. Um, Boy, you did not do. (laughs) I mean, so the best and the worst both came from Memphis, essentially, right? You've got Desmond Bain. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, sticking with Memphis. And obviously, I agree with this, I, especially with the John Morant situation being so unknown. Um, and I think Jaron Jackson Jr. maybe taking a step back here. It just feels like he may have plateaued offensively. They're going to need this guy to be a superstar. And I think you think he's going to be, right? I do. I, I'm a big, big Desmond Bain fan. I like one player's kind of show continuous improvement throughout their career arc, especially in their first few years. And I love when a guy comes back from his rookie year and he's added a little something. And then the next year he adds a little something. And Desmond Bain, when he came in, everybody knew, all right, this guy's going to be an NBA shooter. I mean, that was the, the book on him. At least he'll be able to shoot and he should hold up defensively. So the hope was for a guy who was the 30th pick in the draft, you know, Memphis ends up with a pretty good 3 and D player. Well, what he showed was far more on-ball ability than I think anybody thought he might have. And he can really get himself – he's starting to create a little bit with the foul drawing and those kind of things. But what got me super excited over the last couple of years, and it's going to be big uh, for them with John Morant missing roughly a third of this season, is his playmaking. You can really put the ball in his hands and say, go run, pick, and roll. Go run you know, some of our other sets where we're running off-ball actions, but you have to be the design passer. He's really stepped forward in that way, so I'm really excited for him. And I think Memphis getting him, we're going to call this a max extension because it's so close. It ultimately won't really matter in the long term, but if we're being – you know, accurate about it. It is a less than max extension um, because he did get uh, a little bit less and he's got some bonuses in there and those kind of things. Um, and they, the Grizzlies use the new in the CBA, the ability to do a five-year uh, non-max deal, which is also um, a new usage and I think a really smart one by them. But where the value comes in with this is, I think by the time, probably by the time this actually kicks in a year from now in full, and then, if not a couple years down the line, we're going to say this guy should have been a no-brainer max guy. And yeah. he, we might even say 
he should have been, you know, in the range of uh, getting on, um, getting into the, uh, the the designated player language where he could have bumped up a tier in Memphis. Do you think that's less. why they didn't do it, Keith? Do you, do you believe they think, especially with Morant missing time, that he could have gotten himself in that conversation? Uh, maybe. And, and I think for him, I think he's probably saying, hey, 30th pick in the draft, you know, almost <laughs> yeah. 200 million sounds pretty yeah, good. Historic. But let's go. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I think I, I think if you're Memphis, yeah, you've got that. I think you also want to be very cautious just because if anything goes sideways here, now you've got Morant, who let's all hope, right, he gets the stuff figured out because mm-hmm. he's such a great, young, fun talent. Let's get all that figured out. And then you get Jackson Jr., who you might be right. He might have plateaued a little bit, but he's also a little injury prone. And if anything went sideways with Bain, all of a sudden you've got the small market Grizzlies locked in a three, essentially almost, you know, big, really big money deals. And you might be in a spot where it's like, uh, now how are we going to work around this? Cause it's just a little harder because they're not the Clippers or the Warriors or these teams that can just spend their way out of it. Even if they have limited that in the new CBA, you can still do it. They're just not, not in the place to be able to do that. Yeah, it could be a fantastic big three or a complete disaster. It, it really could go either way over the next really two or three years. Um, I'm voting for the former for sure because I think it's a it's a really nicely built team. I really think the front office has done a great job mm-hmm. um, in Memphis, getting them here and now sort of sustaining this kind of success, even without Moran. I mean, we've, we've already seen what they can do without him. And I think um, it doesn't worry me at all that he's going to miss you know a month or so of games because this contract exists. This is coverage and then some, I think, for that Memphis community to rely on. So uh, yep. it's a heck of a pick. I, I, you know, there were some some decent contracts this offseason, not your not your flashiest offseason. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it, it kind of I think when people saw numbers, that's where people's eyes were like, wait, mm-hmm. what is happening here? <laughs> and that's just a readjustment right to, to where we're at. Like we've written about it ad nauseum. And in, in when I wrote the Giannis Antetokounmpo uh, next contract piece in light of his, you know, I'm not going to extend and all that. One of the things I made sure to call out in there is, hey, this number looks massive, but it's still only 35 percent of the cap. Like it's it's, you know, that that part doesn't change. It's right. the, it's, it's the, what is that percentage of that continues to go up, up, up. And that's something Scott and I have talked about often on the, you know, NBA next podcast is when we get into it, it's like, yeah, these numbers look huge, but that's why we made the effort to go into, you know, every single one of our salary pages and put in the percent of cap number there, which is so funny. I get more comments on, well, Hey, let me rephrase. First is the, I, this is so great. All this data is amazing. Thank you for having it. And then the second thing is from the real NBA people is like, it's so huge that you guys added that percent of cap to, to the, to the, uh, to the sheets. And it's like, yeah, that's why we did it. And part of it was selfish. Cause I was like, Hey, I would like to be able to see this without having to do math myself. And uh, that, that's why we did it. But yeah, that's, that's, that's what was flashy was the, the numbers are so big now, mm-hmm. but as far as like signings and movement and all that stuff, it was a little bit more of a low key um, off season. And part of that was the Lillard and Harden trades kind of hung over everything and then never got done. So we're still kind of waiting on, you know, those were going to be the, the monster blockbuster deals. But I think, and, and I think teams are just getting smarter about, 
drafting, developing, and then retaining talent than they've ever been. Um, they, they don't give up on guys so early anymore. They really do a good job identifying early and signing early. So it, it, it was a fun offseason, even though we didn't have the, you know, oh my gosh, you know, resetting of the league type of stuff. All right, I'll get you out of here on this because you didn't include it in your piece, um, which I think I understand, but I don't think I've spoken to you since this happened. Anthony Davis's three-year extension. Um, I mean, I think there'd be some people who say it qualifies as a bad deal, right? Because it's early. <laughs> it's There's so many question marks with that organization, although they have kind of backed it up, right? With a Vanderbilt deal and, and a mm-hmm. Rui Hachimura deal and obviously Austin Reeves. So it's not like there's nobody, even if LeBron leaves, right? And we expect that that's going to happen eventually here soon. So uh, are they just kind of saying we, we kind of like these guys? And, and if we have to, this has to be our next iteration of Lakers, we're kind of good with that. Yeah, I think there's two things at play with this one. One is that baseball theory of, yeah, yeah. maybe Davis's contract is a little sideways um, towards the end. But for the most part, we feel pretty good about about what he's going to give us over the first really anytime it's a five or or in the rare cases, it extends out six years um, off those those types of contracts. When you get into to that, it really turns into do we feel good about the first half of it if we do? Then the back half we'll figure out later. But I think also for the Lakers, this was a way for them to secure some of their potential post-LeBron future with saying now it's, yeah, Austin Reeves, everybody likes, and what a ridiculous bargain deal they got on him, which is also why you can kind of feel better about paying Anthony Davis because you have Reeves at such a solid number for right now. But what you can say to free agents is, hey, you know, you want to play with Austin Reeves and Anthony Davis in a couple of years if everything is kind of resetting and they're starting over with some cap flexibility. That's a very much easier sell than just saying, hey, want to sign up with Austin Reeves? And then you have to be the number one guy. You can kind of sell it as hopefully Anthony Davis is still here in our number one spot. Beyond that, kind of had to do it because there's no way he was going to sign anything. And I don't think Anthony Davis – in the Lakers wanted to let this play out too far without locking in some kind of long-term future, just because they both have interest, um, you know, almost kind of diverging interest for Davis. Hey, let me lock this up before I turn into a 45 game a year guy fully. And I think for the Lakers, it is, Hey, let's at least have Anthony Davis on the roster as a one, a star for potential post LeBron years. Just uh, because I'm sitting here looking at it and and it's not something I, I normally do. He signed his current contract in this five-year contract in December of 2020. And the it was a maximum extension, as you know. The starting salary was 32 and change in 2020-21. His starting salary in 2025, according to your cap projections, Keith, is 54.6. It's <laughs> yep. a $22 million increase on starting salary over essentially four seasons. That's what the NBA is doing right now. It is, this is not, uh, these are not objective numbers as you noted here, right? This is not the Lakers valuing him. This is what a maximum contract based on percent of cap is saying everybody needs to get now, right? So it's just going to be a normalcy for 50s. It's going to be a normalcy for 60s by 2027, 28, and it's going to be a normalcy for 70s by 2030. And there's really nothing saying, you know, otherwise right now, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're headed to a point where the cap is going to be in a couple of years, 
over $150 million, yeah. which means, you know, 35 percent, you know, just doing quick math, that's well over $50 million yeah. um, in first year salary. Right. The starting then, salary. Right. Exactly. That's starting salary. And then you get the 8 percent raises on top of that. What's interesting for the first time in history, the cap is projected to outpace the raises in growth um, just year over year, because normally cap growth settles around four and a half to five percent. Um, now, because of the new TV deal and because the two sides agreed to the cap smoothing, we are not going to see you know a 20 to 30 to 40 million dollar cap increase in the couple years right around that 25 um, off season because they agreed to that cap that cap smoothing. So what you're going to see is they agreed to lock it at 10%. Then we'll have years and years of spillover to catch back up. So it's going to be 10% for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're, we're, we're too into the range where players making 70, $80 million at the end of a contract. That's, that's just going to be how it is. That's where we're ahead. And that's also why I say that the fact that the league is, is uh, basically openly saying we're going to expand. That's why I say the NBA is in as healthy a spot as it's ever been in, despite some some who will try to say the NBA is in trouble and all these other things. They're doing just fine. Yeah, there's going to be a world soon where Luka Doncic steps out of court and he's making a million dollars a game. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, we're yep. getting there. I mean, and then right on the heels of him, somebody will step on the court making a million and a half. Yeah, and, it's coming. Know, that's, yeah, that's just kind of <laughs> how it goes. Like I, I look at it, you know, and and I see people. I get this a lot, just in the world we live in, where people are like, "But why? Can, you know, how can a team justify paying this guy this much <laughs> when his own teammate is making this much?" And I said, "Because his own teammate knows, hey, if I keep it up in two years, I'm going to be making you know more than what he makes now. It's yeah. just." You know, it's, it's all timing. That's really all it is. It's, you know, no, nothing more than that is just, you know, when, when do you happen to hit free agency? And that's, you know, part, part of the way the game is played. And that's why, guys, you hear more often than not, players are very rarely going to criticize, you know, another player's contract because they know, hey, it's just my time will come, you know, it'll be there for me when I get there. It's only when it turns into, well, wait a minute, you gave role player X, you know, way too much money. Now we're having to cut, you know, star number three because, you know, because it's getting too expensive. What they don't want to hear is the owners crying, complain about luxury taxes and <laughs> trying to win. And that, that, that's going to be a, you know, forever battle. I think as long as we do this, you know what all those middle-class players are actually saying, Keith, they're saying, well, Dylan Brooks can get $86 million from the Houston Rock now. <laughs> Just to bring it back full circle, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right, yep, yeah, there, there it is, right on it. <laughs> Appreciate your work as always. It's all available on spotrate.com. That's Keith Smith. All right, Dan, back to a little baseball. It's been a football-heavy month or so here, so it's good to get back to it. Although, this is kind of the story we thought was coming eventually, right? But it's uh, it's a month earlier than we thought. This is a uh, nail-in-the-coffin moment for the Los Angeles Angels. I think uh, that goes without saying. The Sotani cleaning out the locker, leaving town. There's so much back and forth about the injury itself, how they're handling the injury, how the agents want to handle the injury. Um, here's what we definitively know, and please correct me if I'm wrong. There is no chance he's coming back to the Angels next year, correct? Oh, definitely not. Um, yeah. I mean, that writing was on the wall to me immediately following um, 
the the arm injury news where the angels basically tried to get in front of it saying that they offered to um, give him an MRI on his arm or um, his elbow prior to that injury. And to me, that was just sort of a shot across the table. And I, I haven't thought the, that anything would happen ever since then. So, but yeah, no chance he's back. But I've done very little reading on this. Um, so I'm, I'm real surfacy with the nuances that have gone back and forth. Um, recently i mean at the trade deadline i was pretty focused because i think there was a there was a 50 50 shot that he wasn't with the angels of the deadline and things like that but he stuck around they they had him hitting they had him heading even after the injury where, where do you think this turned does he simply not want to play for contractual reasons are, are his agents in his ear for that and the angels tried to go the other direction or have the angels been actually more proactive with how things might be handled from an injury perspective and he wants to be out there where where are we in terms of how this thing just completely broke apart well i guess if you want to separate the relationship from the injury stuff i think the injury stuff just sort of pulled back the curtain on some issues that we probably already thought were there um i mean even at the beginning of this year, when the free agency stuff started, this, his camp was sort of voicing mm. that he, he wanted to go to a contender. So whether that was a signal to the Angels that you need to start making moves, and then the Angels, whether we like what they did or not, I, I've been very vocal that I did not like what they did. They did make moves and make an effort. So to me, they thought that they had at least some sort of chance coming um, even as recent into the middle of this season that they still had a chance in this thing um, to keep yeah, him. Yeah, crazy the deadline, right? Yeah, and just how they've been drafting. Uh, we've talked about this the last couple of years. They've drafted um, college, a lot of college players, pitchers specifically, guys that they can rush to the majors. Um, they were they were very aggressive at the trade deadline. So to me, they they – I mean, maybe I'm giving them too much credit. They wouldn't have done what they did at the deadline if they didn't think that um, they could still show him that, look, we're a contender and that there there was maybe some salvage of, something to salvage there in that relationship. But maybe I'm totally misreading that situation and it was long gone before that. But now the injury stuff came out. Um, just how that was handled from a PR perspective, I thought was a disaster. If you're, especially if you're trying to keep that player. I mean, um, uh, so I, I don't want to read into too, too much when he got injured, how it was handled, but I, I think the angels are not getting the benefit of the doubt because we're seeing this play out with multiple other players on the roster, i.e. Anthony Rendon, um, for <laughs> one that we really don't know no, what is don't going give me on. That rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even talking from a contractual perspective, but uh, the, the contract factors in because it sounds like the angels are sort of gaming these, these IL stints, um, to, to circumvent the luxury tax. So it sort of does, you know, at least touch into our realm here, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole either. Nonetheless, no, it's, they're, it's they're just not being given the benefit of the doubt um, because of how they handle everything throughout their organization, top to bottom. I cannot stress that enough. Um, all of this seems like a dumpster fire. All right. I'm going to throw one more kind of um, objective question at you before we get into some numbers. How did the angels get this guy in the first place? Um, so that's a good question. He, 
So, I mean, we can unwind the history of Otani back. I won't dig into it like super far, but mm-hmm. he, out of high school, he expressed interest in coming directly to the major leagues. Um, only three Japanese players have ever done that prior to him. Um, and about 99% of the people listening to this will have never heard of any of those three. So he would have been the first, uh, or sorry, the fourth player to make that jump directly from high school to, to uh, professional baseball in the United States. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, I, I think the Rangers, the Yankees, the Red Sox, mm-hmm. and the Dodgers were four of the teams involved. And um, notably, the Dodgers, I think, were his preferred destination, and they did not want to um let him play as a two-way player at that point you know his age his career etc so um knowing that he wanted to go to professional baseball he was still drafted in japan which was a huge risk um that team as part of that said we will let you go to the mlb anytime you want um which typically there's a threshold uh 25 is the age cutoff and also as part of that, they said that we'll let you be a two-way player. So um, the the foundation was laid there in terms of the two-way player stuff. Now, when he did make that jump, I think that it, I, I, I laid that out because the Dodgers were his, it seemed like the Dodgers were his preferred destination. You have to think LA was just an appealing market period to him. Um, and then from there, the angel basically any player under 25 can only be uh, can only play on the the major league minimum plus whatever signing bonus. Uh, the signing bonus is is part of the international signing um, cap like limitations. Pool. Yeah, exactly. So basically, it turned into a game of who can acquire the most cap room in terms of signing bonus to give to to Otani, and and it seems like a mixture of the destination LA plus the cap space that the angels could, could garner at that point um, are like two of the, the, the main reasons he landed there. Now, are there, were there other places he would have preferred to go if, if it, things went a little bit differently, maybe, but to me, that was a very long winded way to lay that out. But to me, that was pretty simply, it, it wasn't like some dying passion that he wanted to be an LA angel or something. Is probably the the two way stuff is interesting though. I don't, I don't remember teams pushing back on that as much as you're saying it did happen. And, uh, and the fact that the angels were so open to that right away, it kind of goes against who the angels are, at least for the past couple of decades, which is extremely robotic, extremely, you know, a plus B equals C. And to bring in a guy who is a complete unicorn and just say, all right, you're going to be whatever you want to be and, and let, to let him flourish into the player he's been for Major League Baseball, it, it goes against everything that, that I think the Angels believe in, at least publicly speaking. So that's, I guess that's why I'm here right now. I'm not mad that they're about to lose him because I don't think they have the wherewithal to keep a player like this and, and obviously do right by him. Um, but, you know, you got down the, the, the path that I was trying to get you down, which was, why, how did the Dodgers miss on this originally? They miss on nothing. You know what I mean? And they've had some bad breaks here the last couple of, uh, I guess, well, year and a half or so here with some pitching issues, but they don't miss on these players. So it, I, I think where I want to go with this is, do you think the Dodgers just simply didn't believe he was coming out when he came out? Because I remember that being a big thing. He If he had waited one, I think, 18 months more, um, and from an age and from a Japanese experience perspective, he would have been able to post at, a, you know, without the international salary cap and, and basically get, you know, 
<laughs> whatever he wanted on the open market, knowing the kind of player he was about to be in two, in two years. So, I mean, what are we talking? Tens of millions, maybe a hundred million. What, what did he miss out on originally coming early to eventually the angels, but to any major league team at the time when he came. Right. It's, this is a terrible answer for this podcast, but it's next to impossible to quantify, but I'll try and break it up a little bit. So just to clarify the the initial where I said his initial interest in coming to the MLB and the Dodgers were the leader that was coming out of high school. Um, then his second time. So essentially the second time, which would be where he landed with the angels. If I had to get, I, I haven't looked too much into this in terms of the Dodger situation at that point, but mm-hmm. they have just crushed the international market year over year for basically a decade. My guess would be, they already had that money earmarked for other premier international players that have we've seen now in you know their stable of guys coming uh, over the last couple of years here. So I would I, I need to look a little bit further into that second go around why it didn't happen. But also there again may have been concerns about what kind of pitcher yeah. um, he would turn into. Like it's easy in hindsight now for you know. <laughs> five or seasons six seasons afterward to to look at him and say like well this is who he is but coming into um you know coming into his career in the MLB in MLB it, it, there was a lot of uncertainty there let's just put sure. it that way I mean all these guys even Kodai Sanga this year um we we knew his stuff was nasty but there were still a ton of people saying how does his how does his repertoire you know translate yeah to the United States, same thing, um, you know, player, you know, on the offensive side, people say, the, you know, is the MPB the same as the MLB? Is it all going to play out the same? So, yeah, I think there was just uncertainty there is probably the best way to put it. All right. Contractually speaking, um, he gets a $2 oh. million bonus. Yeah, it's a $2 million bonus because of the pool. It's a $20 million posting fee. Uh, but, you know, it was early. It was This was the cart before the horse situation for Otani. I, I don't know. I mean, do you give him credit for getting here early from an age perspective because he knew he had to get through his six years and, and yada, yada, yada. He, you know, he knew he, what he was up against with the CBA and, and he just wanted to get to LA and show what he can do from a two-way perspective because he knew this eventual payday was coming. Um, it's, it's a hell of a lot of betting on yourself, right? I mean, I mean, most guys just wait the two years take the 50 or 60 million, which is probably about right. Right. I, I mean, some of these pitchers are getting about 75 million. So I don't know. Is it safe to say that if he was a two-way player, two years more in Jap in, in Japanese baseball, if he was doing this and we kind of knew more about him and there was more of a pedigree attached to him, is he a hundred million dollar player coming, so, coming, coming directly over? Probably. Right. I mean, we've, we've seen five for 75s now become kind of like the high bar. I think Boston just gave that out this past year he had to be a hundred million dollars as a two-way player coming over after the threshold. Right. So that is the projection that I found was that, so he came out two years early. If he had waited two years, he would have Mm -hmm. been a $200 million player is apparently the projection. Now um, it's so hard to quantify that because part of him staying in Japan was him being allowed to be a two-way player. His market in, in major league baseball um, would have been different if he was not a two-way player. So to, to put the 200, it's, 
projected that it would have been 200 million. I think, um, you know, it's impossible to rewrite history in this context, but yeah, I did a yeah. poor job of rounding out that. Yeah, point. but it's fair. It's fair to assume it's going to be in that one to two hundred million threshold, don't you think? I mean, just the right. just the the hype alone would have would have driven the price up. You know how this stuff works. If that kind of player is sitting out there, and he's essentially you know an available free agent to all thirty teams, the the hype machine would have absolutely cruised this thing. Especially if the Dodgers and the Astros were involved, like you mentioned. So, and by the way, this was just preceding Texas's ramp up in terms of their spending. So, you know, they would have thrown huge dollars if it was available to them, but it wasn't. It ended up being capped by the international pool, and you know he 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 gets about. I don't know, 4 million over the first four years. This is where I want to focus with you next before we start talking about maybe some futures. February, 2021, he, he's still not a player yet. You know what I mean? Like he's still like a part-time guy. He's still kind of figuring out, but he's through his pre-arb, right? He's, he's heading into ARB one. There's a lot of back and forth, but he signs a two-year, $8.5 million contract to cover ARB one and ARB two. I know that you have been living inside of arbitration numbers for the past six months. All right. <laughs> More than you will ever admit to anybody out loud, but I know how many of these numbers you've seen. He certainly turned it around immediately. All right. If this was February, 2021 by June, 2021, we all already knew what the heck this was just going to be. And it wasn't about if he can do it, it was how long he was going to be able to do this. Right. And this was three months after a two for 8.5. How much did that two-year extension, buying out two years of arbitration, kill him? Because whatever that, you know, they paid him 30 million this year, one for 30 in ARB3. So we're talking 38 and a half million for three years of arbitration for a player that did two positions, two important positions for a for a team that can afford it. Just give me the grand layout of what 38.5 million over three years is to Otani and how much do you think he left on the table here? Well, I know what you're trying to get at and it's actually yeah. probably on the underwhelming side um, because of that early career holding pattern, if you will. Um, the guys who really top out in arbitration in their in their second and third year of arbitration typically have a pretty long, uh, like a multi-year track record of excellence success at that. And, and I know people are going to say, well, he's been the best player in the world. For no, but I'll say it again. He wasn't, he was a nothing right. heading into February, 2021. So it right. was 20... simply about what was about to come, but the angels still lowballed it in my opinion. Don't you agree? Exactly. Exactly. If I remember contextually at that time, the metrics all signaled the breakout, but people right. just didn't want to believe he would explode in the way he did. And he became a over the course of that 2021 season, he identified as like a top front end of the rotation starter. And that last year was really the year that we saw him become a Cy Young um, candidate. So yeah, that's exactly it is that the ARB1, ARB2 numbers would still have been uh, kind of contained um, mm -hmm. compared to like this 30 mil in ARB3 is is obviously record setting, right? But the ARB1, ARB2 numbers would have been a little bit relaxed because he wasn't really the player he is. But that's a testament to how good the last three years have been that in ARB3, he's now, he, he, he sort of skipped, he sort of skipped part, yeah. you know, and fast forwarded to the ARB3 super number right. if you will let me so. push back in, in two ways 
Number one, he was a hitter. All right. And by the way, that's usually all most players are heading into our born, right? The fact right. that he wasn't yet the starting pitcher we know him to be now and hopefully can be again. That's just that's just gravy. You know, he was already showing that he was going to be a 30 double 40 home run player heading into our born in February 2021. At least the signs were there, like you were saying. So, you know, the math may not have calculated him to be a five million dollar Arbonne player, but logic could have gotten us there. As a single player, as a hitter, you know what I mean? So I I think knowing what was about to come, even if he was the third best pitcher on that roster, and by the way, he probably should have been if the Angels had done a better damn job of things in free agency, but they didn't. Um, I still think two for eight and a half was fair market value for this player about to break out. But I got to push back here, Dan. If they knew that this guy had a chance to be this guy and they had to know they're not, you know, they're, they're not as idiotic as we're all about to say they are for the next month and a half or two months, because I already read this morning on the athletic by Mark Kerrig, just a smear piece, a smear piece on this angels organization. And, and we're not even there yet. He hasn't even left yet, essentially. Right. Right. Um, so there's way more coming. If they knew that this guy was about to change the franchise in a way that not even Mike Trout was able to do right. Completely different international feel. Why, why, why lowball that first offer? Why not put an offer out there that says, this is going to be as good as we know it's going to be. And if we only have you for three years, we're going to do everything possible to make, to make sure that everybody knows we tried our damnedest to keep you in, t- in 2024, including right now paying you for what we know is about to come. To me, that's where they fucked this up, Dan. That, that, that is where the train fell off the tracks immediately. And I know. The, the, the immediate blowback is this guy doesn't care about money. That's why he came over early. That's why you never hear him talk about it. He lets his agents do his work. All that's probably correct. Nobody's going to say no to, to double what you're worth. You know what I mean? Nobody's going to say no to that. So if you offered him two for 20 in February of 2021 and he became the player you are, A, nobody's going to say the Angels overpaid him. They're going to say that they were geniuses for seeing this coming and, and they're doing right by a superstar, something every other league has figured out, including hockey, by the way, right? Who it pays nobody. But you know, we see all these, these defensive players or these two-way players get eight for 64 contracts out of nowhere, and, and they just turn into that kind of player because the organization spends so much work and time on these players that they know where their money is best invested. I just don't think it was even close to the right decision in February of 2021 to throw $8.5 guy and then expect... Lucas Giolito, you know, and Randall Gritchett at, at the at the 2023 trade deadline to change anybody's mind at all. It was just, it, it's such reactive work from an organization that had a chance to completely change the course of their franchise for the next 10 years by keeping this guy forever. And they lowballed it. They lowballed it right out of the gate. So I just want to get this on the record because I know a lot of people are going to look at the one for 30 and say, look, man, they, they really threw the, you know, the book at him this year. They did. And what they were doing is counting, counting, you know, mistakes they made in, in previous pre-arb and arbitration salaries. But everything about this team is reactive and reactive never works in baseball. And, and you can uh, you can look at the Houston Astros last decade a, as proof of how that's going to operate for most of these organizations. So I just wanted to get it on the record. How, how much do you think this player is actually worth, Dan? Truly, how much is he worth over the past three seasons if we're paying for what we just got? What is the top arbitration, you know, three-year package 
that sh- that should have belonged to Shohei Otani because I don't think thirty eight and a half is even close. No, so yeah, I know we were just going back and forth about is no, I got on my soapbox there. So no, I no, 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 no. It's right. Numbers. It's right though because we're sitting, we're we're dissecting is two for eight fair market value, and that's the right point. Is that it, we should not care if it's fair market value because they that's, got that's such a bargain on the first half of that contract. Yeah. Exactly. So um, let's just hypothetically say he's 2021 happened starting in 2020 let's wind it back a year um and say that his like you know superstardom started even before he hit r1 um i mean realistically he probably it, it, it was it's probably like a 15 to 20 million dollar difference which like at surface level might not look a lot, but when we're talking about he made 38 mil over mm-hmm. his three RV years total, if we're talking about another 15 mil on top of that, um, yeah, huge, huge numbers. Um, mm-hmm. I-, I wonder if things did start in 2020, if um, his camp would have been more um, pushing for a, a major early extension sort of thing. I don't um, think so. I, rather I than playing out the arbitration. I feel like that was always out of the equation for a lot of reasons, but it, you certainly could have helped yourself, you know, especially with that first multi-year. The fact that he would take a multi-year, by the way, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how, how does this guy not go year to year knowing what's coming? You know what I mean? The fact that his agent allowed a two-year contract to happen in February of 2021 shows there was a little bit of weakness there. So the Angels could have easily pounced on this and made themselves the the good guys in this whole scenario right out of the gate. I, I just think there was a lot of a lot of missed opportunities, obviously, not just you know with the roster and with Rendon's gigantic gaff of a contract and so many other things. But um, I, I just like to dissect this because it is a one on one, you know. And even if he never comes back to be a star pitcher, but he's able to be for I mean, I've heard this before. What if he comes back and, and is the most dominating closer for the next six years? He very well could be, you know, he could be that play. He could be a John Smoltz type player for the next six seasons, still hit 40 home runs or 40 doubles annually and, and be unbelievably above average and relevant in this league. Um, so let's get there. You know, if, if we think that he was definitely slow played really from day one, you know, you know, internationally capped coming in, you know, multi extended out of, out of his first two arbitration years, and then given a little bit of an uptick with the historic $30 million salary this year, I'm just going to put you on the spot. We're going to do this like once a month for the next three months, because it is that interesting. And that now, my God, that unknown, right. Where this is headed. I know that just in some discussions, you feel like the best approach here, and maybe not more than ever with the injury is this Julio Rodriguez type situation where it's a two part story there's an absolute guarantee up front but it's not a gigantic number but then there are all these ways to get to a gigantic number with mvps and cy youngs and things like that do you think that's still the approach or is logic going to set in and there's still going to be nine teams in and somebody's just going to say let's wipe away all the conditions i'm just going to hand you the 500 million take it or leave it and it's yours whether you're whether you're a pitcher or not ever again. I mean, do you think we get to that point where somebody just completely takes the chains away and and the conditions away and says, we're we're just going to bet on this because we think you're worth it. Yeah. I'm so I'm a range of outcomes guy. And I definitely think that is still in the range of outcomes that some team just says, screw the model and here's your money. Um, 
I, but I do still I, like my hot take on this is that the arm injury did not cost him nearly as much money as everybody is forecasting. Um, okay. because I have held that that is going to be the structure of the contract. And in my opinion, the injury does not change a lot in terms of modern medicine, how we see these guys come yeah. back from, from Tommy John surgery, et cetera, an elbow injury. It is scary, but if this would to me, if he was going to hit the ceiling side of this this financial situation, it was always going to be with some sort of option included that, you know, like if you are still a, a Cy Young caliber pitcher three years from now, we will pay you accordingly. If you are no longer a pitcher, we cannot we cannot be paying you six fifty, sixty plus million a year for the next 10 years um, mm. or whatever that is. So that's why I think this is going to be a layered contract. The number is going to be gigantic, but it's going to be one of those just for reporting numbers. And it, when really it could turn into a maybe a four-year deal with an out of some sort after it, you know, projecting mm -hmm. that he is not going to be a pitcher for that long. And I think it, I will come back on the fact that I think it's way more projectable that he is not a pitcher uh, long term now than it was even six months ago. But um yeah, your reliever point we've walked down before. I'm still, I'm still unsure. I don't think it's, a, I think it's a no. I, I don't think it's a yes. I, I don't know if, I don't know. I want to hear more baseball people talk on if that's realistic to train on both sides if you're only going to be relieving. But I, I, I don't know why it wouldn't be. So, um, but yes, sorry. Yeah. My, my main, yeah. my main point is that his, I still think his number is massive, and I, I don't think the injury has has dented it that much but i'm willing to get butchered on that because literally everything is saying the opposite so <clears throat> do you think one of these absolute monster contender teams are the teams that take off the conditions like well i'm not sure the dodgers would but you know i don't think houston would either texas might would texas do this would texas throw 550 million fully guaranteed no conditions i'm just trying to get to a point of where is the team that does it going to be good enough for him to say yes to? Or is it going to be a team that's just trying to get in the mix and the only way they can get into the mix is to take the innings pitched conditions out of it? You know what I mean? Because I agree with you. I I, I think there, there has to be some kind of, some level of good business built into this. He's phenomenal and he's worth a, a massive guarantee, but this is just too risky now. Not to have conditions on innings pitched or or something, even games finished at this point, games started, you know, you, you could get unbelievably creative with how this thing breaks down. But at some point you might be overdoing it to the point of where his agents just, you know, their eyes gloss over and he says, they're saying, no, we're moving on. We've got, we've got this right. blank sheet of paper over here from the Rangers that we can just sign right now. So I, I, that's going to be a part of this, right? I mean, if somebody tries to get too cute, they're just going to get ripped up and thrown out probably. So I, I think it's fascinating as hell. Um, real quick up on this, Dan, uh, the only player I can think of that had, you know, the, the superstar pitchers that have had UCL recently uh, is DeGrom, you know, obviously a player that I've watched quite a bit and he, he was able to return, you know, and he was able to look like Jacob DeGrom in 2022 and 2023 for a minute, you know, is that the risk that, that it's just going to continue to flare up, even though you can fix this thing pretty much to 110%. It's just one of those things that it weakens to the point of where you try to go out there and throw 99 again. And it's just it, at some point that the ticking time bomb is just going to blow. I mean, is that what I, I don't have a good example of a UCL recovery where a player goes another eight years on a mound, right? No, that, and that's that's why um, 
that's why there needs to be like I, I'm saying this from like a player standpoint. Also, the guy needs to be compensated. Like just like Albert Pujols was a Hall of Fame player, the first half of his career gets a monster ten-year deal. He was no, getting paid angel. for what he it. already accomplished. Yeah, right. I know. But <laughs> but I, this theory that like you're getting paid for what you already accomplished, not necessarily what you're going to accomplish going forward. There is maybe no more deserving player than Shohei yeah. Otani for that example. Now I'm not even saying that somebody just owes him to make us feel better. Like, I'm not saying that, but it like in terms of the pitching side of things that like, if somebody gave him guaranteed three, uh, three years and 150 million with escalators that could get that whole deal up to 500 million. And the guy never pitches again, like even next year, he doesn't pitch again. I think both sides are happy with that deal, right? Like He's yeah. still, you can still consider him, uh, you can still pay him $50 million a year over the next few years and, and feel that good about that contract. Considering like the guy show, the guy is no longer playing in LA shows up, it makes an appearance in the dugout and fans are running down to just get a glimpse of him. Like he, he right. is were, a major buying, buying followers. You were, yes. you, it's like buying a social media account with, with 150 million users attached to it. That's what you have here, right? Right. And, and, uh, in Japan, like they have basically, uh, like, um, like a camera following the guy. It's like Truman TV for people wake up at four in the morning to watch him. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So, so uh, there's a, there's literally a number you can put on that. I don't know what it is or if it even comes into the hundred millions, like if we're talking about in terms of separating the two contracts here, but, um, I mean, I, I, all I'm saying is you can pay the guy in the short term he doesn't pitch for you and you it's still a very valuable contract to you in a lot of ways. Now I understand a team not wanting to commit to that sort of a, arrangement for mm-hmm. 10 plus years on a guy that is probably not going to be a two way player all that time. But um, I do think in the short term, he, de- he deserves to get paid handsomely with um, with outs for both sides. Like it may, maybe he doesn't want to lock in 10 years either. He wants to stay competitive. He doesn't want to go to an organization that might, you know, wind it back a couple years down the line. I have no idea what his intentions are, but um, in the short term, I will just paint a broad stroke. I think he should get paid um, in the short term with a with a number of options for the future. All right, two more points here because I'm I'm having fun with this. So who cares if we run over? Um, isn't it fair to say, just from one side of this, that he's Aaron Judge? Right. I mean, yeah, I've lo- you can- you can take the UCL stuff away, right? I mean, Harper returned in a month and a half, essentially, from that, right? And and I think he's going to be just fine starting in 2024. So I, I think the Shohei Otani, the hitter, which is unbelievable, is Aaron Judge. And, it's a, and he's a year younger than Aaron Judge was last year when he went through his big free agency. So, so isn't the starting point a tax-adjusted version of Aaron Judge's current contract just as a hitter? So it, to me, that hasn't gone away. At all. And in fact, it's, it might have improved this past year because of what he was playing through, because of all the uh, the attention, um, yada, yada, yada. So I, I, I'm not even sure we can start this conversation less than $375 million, Dan. Uh, to me, that's like the just the hitter starting point, 375, whether it's 10 or 9, 10, whatever it's going to be, years. Uh, but everything else on top of that is the pitcher discussion. So I, to me, that's the logical starting point is he is Aaron Judge. He, he is his own version of Aaron Judge as a hitter. Everything else on top of that is gravy. And how they handle the gravy in negotiations is the fascinating part. But I'm not sure anybody can go, go south of Judge's number here. 
No, Mike, I, I, I really, I couldn't agree more. I'm glad you put it that way because, um, you know, for people who haven't heard our 30 different dialogues on this topic, at one point we did discuss, you know, it's not a point being talked about. He's talked about as a first baseman DH. He's playing first base and DHing at, to hide him um, in terms of injury risk from the outfield. He would be a bona fide top three corner outfielder for multiple years, in my opinion, um, if he was no longer a pitcher. So that that's a really good point to make. I think we don't even give him enough credit on that side of things. Defensively, he, he could still be a really valuable asset. So I think that three, 375 is a really good number. And that my flag plan is it's still the number, the ceiling number is still 500 million. To me. Mm-hmm. I still think the reported number when all said and done is, is 500 mil or more. Um, whether that that's not what he's going to earn over the life of the contract, in my opinion, but for reporting purposes, that's where it lands to me still. Okay. All right. L- last thing, because I'm still watching the Mets on a daily basis because I'm, you know, a crazy person and you know, there's not much to talk about on the broadcast because they're kind of going through the motions, with kind of like a B a C roster right now. So I'm going to give Gary Cohen some credit here because he threw this idea out just in the middle of conversation. Cause that's what you do in September when your team's not in the postseason. The idea of Otani simply sitting out 2024, literally not signing a contract, recovering 150%, and then letting the process happen in winter of 2024 with a completely healthy Shohei, essentially making the trip around of 29 or 30 teams as an absolute street free agent. Is that bonkersville? Because the money's here now, he's got to just take it? Or is there actually some some logic to that kind of a notion? I hadn't heard it until a Tuesday night Mets game when they had nothing else to talk about. So I thought it was a phenomenally creative, objective look. Yeah, it it definitely would plug multiple holes at once sort of thing where um, you're taking some of that injury uncertainty back. Yeah, I, I mean, teams will still have a little bit of hesitation from like an injury perspective, but you're going to see him. I mean, there's going to be, uh, all over the world. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, it's a really cool idea and would give us another full year of, uh, talking. Oh my God. (laughs) Right. Talk about like Lamar following Lamar Jackson for 18 months. Otani for another 12 months. Um, to, to me, the biggest risk of that is this. What if he comes back and can't pitch and now we know he can't pitch. Right, that's... right now, there's at least the idea that he probably will, and somebody's going to pay for probably will. But if he, but if he recovers and he gets on the mound, and and you just know he's never going to be that player again because he's showing it to you live, the money's just gone. Right, that whole portion of his money is gone. So that's the risk, in my opinion. But I, I think he he just seems to be the, the specimen that can recover, and and I think we'll at least have, you know a couple of years of really strong a plus pitching out there again. So it's probably a a low risk, but I I just thought it was a creative thing to throw out there because if he's going to be this unicorn player, why not be like the unicorn free agent too? Right. I'm so confident in myself and I'm going to buy bet in myself again here at age 30 and just say, I'm just going to go home and work out and, and recover and rehab and not have to deal with the media and the stresses and the, you know, being half of who I can be for a year while I'm rehabbing my pitching arm, I, I, it's not the worst idea I've heard, you know, recover completely as a human being and then come back at hundred percent at age 30 and, you know, 
sign your $500 million contract then. But I don't think we're, we're going down that path. I just wanted to get it back into the fold here. No, it's a super interesting point. Um, I don't think it would happen either. But I will say, I think the 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 it's a pretty low risk move, though. Like what you just pointed out right there seems to me to be one yeah. of the only pitfalls. I mean, if yeah, we're calling his falling, right. if we're calling his fourth, Aaron Judge's contract right now, even if he sits out a year and that turns into 300 million is his floor. If, uh, it, it, you know, he comes back and we say, oh, he definitely can't pitch. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's kind of a low risk move with more with more upside than anything, but super interesting. I hadn't heard that. I'll get you out here on this question because I'm just going to assume you believe the Dodgers are still the favorite. Yeah, for me, yes. Very okay. Much so so have, having having that knowledge. With Kershaw, I think almost guaranteed to retire here. It just seems like he's he's actually saying that out loud. The Julio Urias stuff, the recent Trevor Bauer stuff, Walker Bueller not yet returning. We don't even know if he'll be full strength yet next year. It's kind of a mess, right? They need this guy. Uh, the, the the need for Shohei Otani and you know three other pitchers is now as great as it's ever been with the Dodgers for the over the past six years. Does that raise his price as an as an LA Dodger? Because I think any leverage the Dodgers thought they were going to have coming into this as the clear betting favorite probably is gone now because of their decimated rotation, right? Well, they do still have some guys. Um, they're not dudes yeah. like we are used to seeing them replace, um, you know, backfill their rotation spots with, but there is still some talent there. Um, I'm... I don't know. I have, I have total faith in this, in this organization where I don't yeah. want to say they need him. I mean, like even them identifying Eduardo Rodriguez, they they know who they're looking for and they know how they want to tweak those guys to get the best of them. So if they miss out on Otani for some reason, like I'm not going to sit here and say that they're toast, but um, cause they were, you know, Julio Urias was a free agent. We don't know if he was even going to be back to begin with. Right. So um, things don't change a lot there for me necessarily, but, um, let me throw one thing real quick back at you. What do you think of all this Boston stuff? Is this just smoke oh. or is there actual signal there? Like, I mean, is this just the easy layup? Like there's Japanese players there and he, he wanted to go there previously. So maybe no, how can you have confidence again? when they just fired their GM president? I, 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 I know mean, it, I, it seems like it, that that's a direct shot at something that, 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 that is, that is binding that institution right now. And, and Otani might be it right there. There may be. The, the GM may be all in on that. And the owners basically may be saying, look, we're not doing that. We're not doing 600 million for one player. I don't care who he is. And by the way, that's a very Boston thing. If you're the ownership, right? I could absolutely see that happening. So I think Otani might be the single reason that Chime Bloom doesn't have a job right now, Dan. And how, so how can I have confidence that, that he's a real destination for that, play, that team? No way. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, much ado about nothing right now but it just the timing seems real weird to me all of this seems too convenient that i just wanted to pick your brain on whether that's uh legit or just uh negotiating leverage at this point in time just to get on the record here who who is your dream team for him let's say he fully recovers he can pitch for five years who who is your the the most fun team to get shohei watani right now i have one um I never hear him either, which stinks. You go first. I, I, I'd really love to see him in Toronto. Um, oh, interesting. It's a huge, obviously, international scene, huge, huge, um, you know, Asian scene. 
and they're just loaded with young talent, but they cannot break through, right? It just seems like they have something holding them back. You bring a player like this to take so much pressure off a lot of those young superstars and just throw him into the mix. And my goodness, I, I like the city fit. You know, obviously, it, it, the travel is a little bit more difficult for him, but, you know, it's a big, big city, big airport. And the team is just set up for this if there's an ownership willing to pay, you know, the $600 million. But I, that's my dream team for him. By the way, putting him in the AL East, super fun. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. I I think I heard them once mentioned as like a long shot contender, yeah. but I re- you really don't hear about them. Yeah. And it is a it makes you... Um, I, I bring that up because the only time I ever heard it, it did kind of pique my interest and in you bring it up again now um, mm-hmm. aligns with that. But um, I mean, I, 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 I hate to even do this and I've been beating this drum. I really do think the Cubs are such a sexy fit for him in a number of ways. Um, yeah. And I do think we saw them sort of make a move towards uh, more, more revel- relevancy again this year. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to say that's like my dream scenario. I like if, but I do want to see him somewhere he'll contend. I'm sick of seeing the best player in baseball, um, you know, multiple best players in baseball buried in terrible organizations. So if that's the Dodgers, then it's the Dodgers. And we, yeah, it, I, we I still think it's going to be, but I'm, I'm trying to yeah. be creative about it. Um, All right. Good stuff. We're not done killing the angels. Next time we talk, let's uh, let's both prepare some Mike Trout destinations. Cause that's got to happen. It's just Sounds time. Good. It's time to time to continue this landslide. That is the angels. If they're going to have to pay Anthony Rendon and they're going to have to, uh, let's find a way for them to pay a little bit of Trout's contract to get him out this winter as well. Good stuff, man. Thanks, Mike. All right, he's Keith at Keith Smith NBA on Twitter. He's a great follow. He's a great read, and he's great to have on the Spot Tread podcast. My thanks to Cousin Dan. My thanks to Keith. We'll be back Thursday with Brandon Kravitz. Probably pretty NFL heavy at that point in time, but you never know. The, uh, the Angels may uh, do something else ravish that uh, brings them back into the focus. Maybe buying out Anthony Rendon. Maybe the actual Mike Trout is on the trade block, trade block stuff will be here. You never know. It is the Angels. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Gennetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spot Track Podcast. <laughs>